Okay, Dr. Melkor, can you hear me? Hello. How are you? I'm, I am doing fine. Good, good. I'm glad uh, we were able to partially resolve the sound issue here. So I'm very happy to finally have you on. Uh, Dr. Linda Melkor is with us uh, for a conversation. You and I have had a, a, a number of phone conversations trying to put this together and life and COVID and other things have gotten in the way. And so I'm very happy to have you on. Um, you know, for our listeners, I, I want to just mention that this is going to be an introductory uh, conversation and hopefully uh, time permitting for both of us, we'll be able to have a number of follow-ups to sort of delve further into the details of and uh, various segments of this extremely interesting topic. So I also, uh, Dr. Malcro, I want to say that as an Iranian Canadian American myself and a bit of a history buff and who's made a few documentaries for the History Channel uh, in the past, I can't tell you how excited I was to discover that there was a book by Western scholars, no less, finally discussing not only the migration of these North Iranic, Sarmatian, Scythian peoples into Europe during what I believe is that uh, described as a decline and fall of the Western Roman Empire, um, but also, you know, to hear evidence regarding the potential contributions of some of these peoples, um, both to the material culture of Europe and as well as to the themes, uh, the characters, stories of what came to be known as the Arthurian cycle. Am I, am I, am I putting that correctly? Yes, you are. You're doing a fabulous job of it. Um, it took us a long time to write the book. We wrote many, many papers about it and uh, we got a lot of, um, feedback from scholars uh, in the West that wasn't exactly positive. They didn't believe us. And so we eventually um, decided to write a book on the topic. And uh, we um, went through a lot of presses trying to get it published. And eventually Garland picked it up and we were able to go through them and get it out. And it's had uh, fabulous international sales um the british and americans are not quite as fond of it i think it's because that's uh they don't want their king arthur taken away um but it's been translated into russian hungarian um it's going into italian it's been in japanese the japanese are huge fans of it um and that's you know, pretty much how we got into it <laughs> you guess that uh, you mentioned, you know, there's going to be, and uh, this was a future, a question that I was going to ask you, so I'm glad you jumped right into it, you know, the pushback, because I know that academia, in academia, as with everything else in the world, you know, everyone has their pet theories, and there's a, there's a racial or an ethnic or a linguistic or geographic aspect to this is ours and not yours, and so on and so forth. Um, so that's to be expected. Uh, I would venture to guess that the vast majority, if not all people, other than those who specialize in the field, maybe, would, when you talk about, you know, King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table and the Holy Grail, imagine that these are entirely, I know, either Anglo-Saxon or Celtic or perhaps Germanic in origin, uh, and would probably be shocked to hear that there may well be some very important you know, North Ironic, uh, Scythian, Sarmatian uh, influence from the from the Eurasian steppe as well. Yes, most people assume that King Arthur was from the uh, early Middle Ages. And that, that's the people that watch the Disney Sword in the Stone movie and John Borman's Excalibur and things like that. Um, not accurate sometimes? It's not accurate until... Um, it was like the late 19th century. Everybody thought he was medieval. And then the archaeologists started sticking their spades in the ground and uh, figured out that, no, he wasn't. And so a lot of people went back to the 5th century and started looking for him there, 5th and 6th century. And that's what the popular scholarship is these days, but that he was Celtic of some sort. And... Um, what Scott Littleton and I did was we looked at the literature and came up with a completely different conclusion um, that he uh, 
came from the stories of the Northeast Iranian speaking tribes. Yeah, yeah. Now, let me ask you, uh, I'm assuming, and from also from what I've read, and probably in, even in your own book, that there have been other scholars that have suggested at least elements of this uh, in the past, uh, maybe even past decades or centuries. Is that correct? But perhaps not yes. to, to the extent? Yes, that's correct. Um, Georges Dumézil um, was a Frenchman who collected uh, stories from the Ossessions, and uh, they're called the Nart Sagas. And um, yeah, the Nart Sagas, yeah. Yeah, John Colarusso has done a lot of work on him. He's from Canada, and uh, he did more of the Caucasian, uh, not Caucasian, uh, Circassian, and uh, Azerbaijan, those areas. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, if um, I stop you for a moment, just for our uh, mm -hmm. Persian-speaking uh, community listening. Yeah, the Nart sagas, these are stories very kind of similar to the Shahnameh in the Persian-speaking world. Um, that are, uh, again, belonging to the Alans or North Iranians, well, sort of in this, maybe some Turkic elements later on, on top of it, I, I believe, that came much later, of course, um, that uh, really uh, the region that, that, that produced them is, is what is now considered the South and North Caucasus, or, you know, Azerbaijan, Armenia, um, and uh, Georgia, to some extent. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Um... The Romans called the Alano Sarmatians. The Alano Sarmatians were the Northeast Iranian um, speaking peoples who carried these tales. And the Romans actually called them Scythians um, yeah. because yeah. the Scythian, they occupied the same lands that the Scythians had occupied. They're uh, a more specific uh, breakdown of that. Um, and that's how we can trace the tales is by having this more specific breakdown. Yeah, yeah. And again, uh, because we're using terminology that may be unfamiliar to some of my listeners on the Iranian side, let me say the Scythians are what we in the Iranian tradition refer to as the Sakas or the Sakas. Um, and uh, Sarmatians are the Sarmats. Um, I'm, I'm just, you know, translating the, the oh, ver fine. verbiage here. And the uh, Alans, who I believe are... Uh, maybe a subcategory of the Sarmatians, really, who went further west, uh, we call the Ardalons. Um, okay, and, and now uh, these are the, the, the populations, and by the way, these are all very semi-nomadic, pastoral, equestrian tribes who basically lived uh, either on their horses, from what I read, or, um, or in their um, horse-drawn wagons, is that right? Yes, the uh, Sarmatians arose in the uh, Central Asian steppes, and uh, they were pretty much all on their horses. Um, the, the children would use horses to uh, herd the, the cattle and the sheep and the other horses, and the warriors rode their war steeds, and uh, the women and older men would drive the wagons. The Alans uh, came behind the Sarmatians. They were between the Sarmatians and the Huns. And this is all happening pretty much north and east of the Black and Caspian. Now, let me just interrupt you on that. The Huns now are an entirely different ethno-linguistic group. Is that not yes. correct? Yes, yeah, that's they correct. Are. They're all Taic speakers. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're not Indo-European, uh, but, but they came later. And perhaps it's even partly because of the the Huns that this, these people pushed further and further to the West. Is that, is that possible? That's correct. That's yeah. absolutely correct. Okay. Um, and by the way, the horses, I again want to mention for my um, Iranian listeners, uh, it's interesting that at Persepolis, so when you have um, rock carvings of the various peoples of the Achaemenian Empire bringing gifts, there are a number of uh, tall-hatted Scythians or Saka bringing horses. That was the gift that they brought. <laughs> so... That makes total sense that, uh, you know, that was their, their bread and butter, you could say. Yeah, that was their major wealth. Um, if you go to museums, a lot of times you'll see their artwork mislabeled as Greek. Um, yeah. They worked in gold and their, their artisans were just absolutely fantastic. And the West has very frequently mislabeled those as Greek um, uh vessels and well, bring that up you know it's it's some amazing art and i will put some up some of that up um you know a little bit later uh to share it with uh, with the listeners 
Um, I, you know, growing up, you're absolutely right. When I looked at it, they, they did call it Scythian, but they said that it's Greek-influenced art. And now we're learning more that it's really a combination. And, and it makes sense, doesn't it? Because these folks lived um, um, to the north of the Black Sea. They traded with the Greeks as they did with the Persians to the south there. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, uh, my Greek friends may not want to hear it, but it could be that a lot of these elements actually originated with the with the Scythians and Sarmatians rather than with the Greeks. The uh, standard opinion for until the till Scott Littleton and I got involved in all this was that uh, the Sarmatians had hired Greek artisans to do the work. <laughs> and if you look at the art, they're using step motifs like the deer with its head turned around to the back, or they're depicting Sarmatian warriors uh, on the vessels. And the Sarmatians had their own artisans. And they would forge their own swords. People were saying that, oh no, they didn't forge their own swords. They bought them from other people. No, they were able to take and forge their own swords. The sands of the Black Sea are loaded with iron. And yeah. they were and, able to- And that's being discovered as we speak more and more. Right. right? Yeah, yeah. So they, they forged their own swords and they're just absolutely magnificent if you ever see any of them. I um, have, yeah, no, they're, they're astounding. They look- uh, uh, naturalistic and also abstract at the same time in their in their right. yeah uh, themes. In fact, um, I don't know if the lure if you're familiar with the Luristan bronzes. I'll mention those as well. Uh, there's some talk that they also the Luristan bronzes that were found in Lur province uh, or the province of Luristan, Western Iran, in the Zagros Mountains, maybe either Median, which if if they are the Medians, there that's a closely related Iranic tribe or specifically Scythian and Sarmatian from even long before the Achaemenians. So, you know, these, uh, these steppe peoples uh, have been around that region for a very, very long time and creating art for a long time. And, you know, I, I also heard uh, someone sort of half humorously describe the Eurasian steppe as uh, the uh, uh, human uh, a machine that, that, that produces waves of humans, to, 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 to put it that way, one after another. It seems uh, first there was, you know, the Aaronic Sarmatians and Scythians, then there was the Huns and the Avars, and then the Mongols and the Timurids and the Turkic tribes. It seems like uh, all of these people uh, originate somewhere in Central Asia and uh, eventually end up migrating westward. The Iranian-speaking people into Europe and uh, one of the things Scott and I were able to do is we could look at the Arthurian tales and because we knew these Nart sagas, um, we could look at the things that were similar in them. For example, most people know the story of how um, Arthur, when he's dying, his sword is thrown into a lake. Yeah. And uh, actually, I just finished rereading uh, Sir Thomas Mallory, who sums up most of the tales, and he has it thrown into a sea, which is actually very, very close to the Nart sagas um, of Batrage. And the way the story goes is Arthur's dying, he's carried to the sea, and then he asks Sir Bedivere to uh, throw Excalibur into the water. And Excalibur, um, Bedivere picks it up and he goes to the edge of the water and he decides it's too good of a sword to throw in. So he hides it and he goes back to Arthur and Arthur says, what happened? And Bedivere said, nothing, there were just a bunch of waves. And Arthur said, you didn't throw it into the, the water, go back and do it. And so Bedivere goes again and he still can't bring himself to throw in the sword. And so he hides it again and goes back to Arthur and said, Arthur says, what, what happened? And Bedivere says, nothing. And Arthur says, you did not throw the sword into the water. <laughs> and so Bedivere goes back and he picks up the sword and he finally throws it out over the sea and a hand comes up out of the water, grasps it, flourishes it in the air and then draws it below the water. Um, then three queens show up in a boat and they take the dying king into the boat and they sail away. And 
some stories, Mallory is very good about saying some stories say that Arthur died and they buried him at Glastonbury. Others say that Arthur died and uh, he was taken to the Isle of Avalon. Um, and others say that Arthur's spirit ascended into heaven. And that is an important point because when you go over to the story of Batraj, he is dying and he's by the sea and he asks the Narts to throw his sword into the sea. The Narts can't do it. It takes 20 of them to lift this sword. So they hide it and they- uh, um, Like a Thor's hammer, yeah. Right. And so they hide the sword and they go back to Bartraj and he says, what happened? And the Narts tell him, well, nothing happened. There were a bunch of waves. And so this repeats again. And Bartraj finally says, you know, do, really do it this time. And so they all muster all the strength that they have and they're able to lift the sword and throw it into the water. And then the sea turns blood red and a storm comes up and there's all this miraculous stuff that goes on. And they go back to Batraj and tells him this and then he dies and his spirit ascends to heaven. So it's the Very same interesting. And it, that was pointed out by Joel Griswold who is another Frenchman, student of Dumais. Around what era? Um, it, uh, Griswold was writing probably the 1970s. So it's late that people are noticing this stuff. And it's only because the uh, Dumaisil collected the accession uh, tales of the Narts from Turkey. He was taking it from ref refugees in Turkey. Yeah. Um, and uh, Griswold was his student. So an oral tradition. Hmm? So uh, a bit of an oral tradition. Oh yeah, it's totally oral tradition and it got written down. And it's like Colorado has just been working on this with the other uh, countries since, well, he's been publishing in 1990 in the early 2000s. So this is really new scholarship. Yeah, yeah. Now, um, there's also, you know, there's a number of themes and I, I, I'm sure we won't be able to get through all of them today, but uh, some of the major ones, you know, they, you mentioned the sword, the sword in the lake, the sword in the stone as well. You know, apparently the Scythians uh, had a habit of putting their swords uh, into, into the ground. And that, that's the Allens. The Scythians yeah. stuck it into um, a pile of wood atop of an anvil shaped um, uh, bit of, um, it's like an altar uh -huh. and people could stand on it. And there was a golden cup that they took and they uh, took their prisoners from battle and chopped off their right arms and collected the blood in the chalice and then took that up on top of the altar and uh, poured it over this sword. And it's the worship of the Scythian war god who is absolutely the most terrifying war god I've ever read about. Uh, he's the, um, the, the golden cup uh, comes from Scythian tradition as well. There are three objects. There's the cup and there's a battle axe and there's a plow that come down from the heavens. And you will find that in many European traditions. And so there are a lot of scholars that say, oh, this is just something that's just Indo-European. But if you study it with these specific peoples, it doesn't show up in these areas until the Alans and the Sarmatians get there. So right. they're transmitting the legend. And, and, so, and so the argument is, is that it's not only a, a proto-Indo-European commonality, but it's more specifically this Indo-Aaronic, Scythian, Sarmatian, Alon uh, tradition that, that may exactly. have uh, elements that go even further back, but, but, but as it manifests, it's more, more specific than, than just to say that it's Indo-European. Right, exactly. So, yeah, yeah. And also the dragon, you know, is another, I, I understand that the Scythians um, had as their banner or flag, you could say, a, a dragon. And there's some theories, by the way, I don't know if you're familiar or you're an advocate of these theories, that, that the dragon insignia from as far east as China all the way to Europe is really from the Scythians. Um, the dragon banner was actually used by the Sarmatian group. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a dragon's head with a long, like windsock tail attached it to it. Like a kite, yeah. And when they rode with it uh, in the air, it made this terrifying sound. Yeah. And it when they um, got over to Britain, five thousand five hundred of them were defeated by Marcus Aurelius and were sent to Britain. And when they got over there. Celts looking at this banner would call it the Pendragon, which is where you get what Arthur Pendragon it? from. Um, what, what was the name? Could you repeat that? Pendragon. Okay. It means dragon head. It's yeah. a dragon head banner. Yeah. And, and there's some uh, diagrams or, or illustrations of that in medieval European culture. Is that is that correct? Oh, yes. Um, in the manuscripts, it shows up I've seen a couple of images. One, I'm not sure who the bearer is, but one is actually Merlin, which makes him a Draconarius, which is a a Roman rank. And the Romans actually adopted this from the Sarmatians. They thought it was such a cool idea that they started using the banner throughout the legions. Yeah, wow, very interesting. Now, you mentioned the um, number of 5,000, some uh, 5,500, whatever the number is, of of these Aaronic tribes being moved to Britain. Let me let me just mention that, uh, step back and kind of put that in perspective for listeners who may not know anything about this. Uh, a lot of these Alon tribes um, were moving westward already for quite some time into Eastern, Central, and even as far as Western Europe into Gaul and then South into the Pyrenees, correct? And at the time of the Sarmatians, it was about 200, and Marcus Aurelius had stopped them at about the Danube. Yeah. Um, well, by the time you get to the Alans moving in, it's in the 400s, and they're just overrunning Rome. Right, right. And and then there's also a, a specific number, a smaller number of 5,000 some odd, or I've, I've heard different numbers, that were transported by the Romans, these uh, knights on horseback, these ironic knights on horseback to man Hadrian's wall or to protect Hadrian's wall against uh, the, um, is it the Celts to the north of that? No, it's uh, Pictish peoples. Um, okay. The Caledonians were the main tribe that they were fighting up. Uh, they actually came from north of the Antonine. But the Sarmatians were settled at a fort called um, uh, Bremetanacum, which is modern-day Ribchester, and the fort belonged to the Sixth Legion, um, the Sixth Victrix, which was stationed at York, and Ribchester is actually over in Western Britain on the other side of the Pennine. Well, now. this to me is like the smoking gun in a way in the argument, because yes. not only are we now talking about similarities that are extremely close and there's there's many many of them that we won't get to in this conversation in terms of the themes of the stories but we actually have the the people in the area we we, that's a part of history we know that they were there is that correct yes and they dressed like medieval knights they had conical helms they had uh um Mail, chain mail, and uh, they carried shields with what we call tomgas on them. They're like heraldic symbols. Uh, you find those cropping up in Hungary. Um, and they fought with these long weapons that look like lances. And then they oh. had their swords. And so after their lance broke, they went and fought with their swords and shields. You know, um, but they were all cavalry. I was always very intrigued by why there's such a similarity between the history of uh, of Iran that I that I knew, especially the Parthian and Sasanian eras, in terms of the look of their knights and uh, the somewhat later European look of 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 cavalry and knights, fully armored, uh, jousting, um, even the horse is armored. And then I realized, oh, of course, because that really started in the Parthian era, and the Parthians are uh, very close in the culture complex to the the Northeast Iranians. So it's very possible that both these traditions really come from these these, uh, Sarmatian Alonic peoples, whether on the Parthian side of the world or uh, in the European side. Um, In fact, there was a a documentary, which if you haven't seen, I recommend uh, called Barbarians. And it was hosted um, and produced by Terry Jones, uh, uh, the late great Terry Jones of Monty Python, who's also a historian, 
He went to the same college I did. Are you, did you know him? <laughs> yeah, Occidental in uh, Los Angeles. Did you know him personally? I don't know him personally. He was a few years before me, but we sure, went yeah. to the same college. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I knew him too because we were working on a project. And of course, uh, uh, he, he, he has passed, uh, sadly, a few years ago. Yeah. What a brilliant uh, mind and soul, as all of the Pythons were. But anyways, in this uh, series called Barbarians, he goes to Iran in one of the episodes called the Brainy Barbarians, which was about the Greeks and the, it's ironically titled, of course, um, right. and the Persians. And, and he goes to a, a very famous uh, Iranian archaeological site where there's a, a man on horseback, fully armored, head to toe with the, with the horse, uh, also armored. And he says to the audience, does this look like Merovingian France? And then he says, it's not. It's Parthian Sasanian Iran. And now it, it makes total sense to me because both of those cultures perhaps had, uh, if not their, uh, their origin, at least influenced by these North Iranic Sarmatian tribes. And yeah, the Sarmatians had armored for horses and I believe the Alans did too. Um, the Alans did some other stuff like uh, a lot more work with the bows. They weren't as heavy cavalry. They're only part of their lighter yeah. cavalry. But they used the lariat and drove the Romans nuts because the Romans the had those lined up um, uh, formations and they would rope the guy on the end and pull him and knock them all over like dominoes. Wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. It's essentially, it's essentially the, the around the same time as the Parthian shot that was used against the Romans uh -huh. that gave him so much trouble. And I believe you know, having to deal with these people, both on the Parthian frontier and to the north with the Alans and so on and so forth, the Romans actually had to change their own military tactics and 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 go from infantry to a little more cavalry in order to try to counter this. Is that correct? They actually started using the Alans um, <laughs> when, they, when they came in. They hired them on. They hired them. Yeah, you can't the beat Romans them. now, and they yeah. they sent them to. Uh, what is now Brittany as tax collectors and they uh, used them as shock troops against the other people who were coming in like the Visigoths. Enforcers. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah, I can only imagine, you know, for during that time, because the Romans were certainly in the time of the Republic, very infantry heavy. And uh, to, to come across these, basically uh, an ancient version of a tank must have been uh, quite a sight. Yeah, I believe the first uh, Roman emperor to fight the Sarmatians, he wasn't an emperor yet, was Tiberius. So it was really early on in the early empire that they started interacting. Um, yeah, yeah. The Sarmatian horses had a lot more flexibility than the Parthian ones. The Parthian uh, armor was lamellar, so kind of like plates the size of a deck of playing cards. <laughs> and that was very heavy. They were good for like one charge. Um, and done. <laughs> yeah. the uh, Sarmatians had more of the, uh, it was like chainmail on the horses, chain just yeah. like on the people. Yeah. Yeah. So they were able to move better. They were more maneuverable. And so when they got up to Britain, um, they actually stopped the invasion on the western side of Hadrian's Wall. The Romans couldn't do it on the eastern side. And the Caledonians came through and sacked York, killed the governor there. Um, then they came over the Pennine Mountains. And what they weren't expecting was 5,500 Sarmatian warriors in their way because they were trying to get to Chester where the um, 20th Legion was. And the Sarmatians chased them all the way back uh, up north through what is now Scotland, up north of the Antonine Wall. And Rome didn't hear from them again for several hundred years. Um, yeah. And uh, the assumption is that they stayed and they had families and they, they, they settled. Yes. Yeah. Um, I've had a lot of people telling me it was only 5,500 Sarmatians. And I've repeatedly told them the logistics of that is just ridiculous. They're coming all the way from the Black Sea and you've got to get them to the far side of Britain. And you've got to have a remount for the horse uh, for the night. And you've got to have his arms, his armor, 
his tent. You've got all this stuff. It's not being carried on the horse. It's being carried in the wagon. Wagon. Yeah. And the driver of the wagon was the woman. And um, as old men, they didn't like old men that much. They tended to kill the old men. Uh, it was just a cultural prejudice. Um, but they uh, children managed their herds, and the women drove the wagons. And so they brought their families with them, their wives and their children. It's like the Romans had their baggage train. Well, this yeah. was the support crew for the Sarmatians that went to Britain. I don't know how the Romans got them across the English Channel. That is just mind-boggling. That that yeah. maneuver that they yeah. did. Well, um, I mean, the, the Romans were already there for quite some time, right? So, right. with the large numbers, yeah. You know, it reminds me a uh, uh, smaller scale, but you know, what the Persians under Xerxes did crossing the Dardanelles uh, to, to invade European Greece over the bridge of ships you know, <laughs> a long time before. But yeah, these sorts of things, you know, the Romans, I'm sure, had the ability to do it. But I would not I would not be surprised, as you say, that uh, it might have been a larger number than that. Um, I, I think it's going to be somewhere closer to 15 to 20,000 that settled yeah. in around Ribchester. And the commander there is given a new title. He's not just the commander of the fort. He's the commander of the numerous and the region. Now, numerous is a group of uh, foreign warriors who maintain their own fighting style, are responsible for their own equipment, their own horses, all this type of stuff. And uh, the Roman army wasn't supporting them. They were still using their steppe nomad traditions there. Yeah, let, the, let them fight the way they fight, you know? Right, exactly. Because if you took Alan's and Sarbatians, they assimilated really well into the cultures that, uh, that they saw as conquering them. The Romans figured that out early. You don't want the Alans and Sarmatians to think that you conquered them. You want to make friends with them. And if you make friends with them, they'll fight for you. And you have to keep letting them use their fighting techniques. Otherwise, they'll just start fighting like Romans. And that wasn't doing the Romans any good. Oh, the, the pride of these, uh, these uh, North Aaronic tribes seems to be something that uh, is consistent throughout history. I'll give you a, when you just said that, I thought of another example from another point in history where Darius the Great uh, of, uh, of the Achaemenian Persian Empire was, was chasing uh, a group of Sarmatians. This is, this is 5th century BC we're talking now, so it's a different era, um, around uh, the Black Sea. And he couldn't really pin them down. It was a scorched, you know, they really didn't have cities to speak of. Uh, they were nomadic people. They would just, they would just go further back um, into the, um, what is now, you know, uh, near the, the Volga in Russia. Mm -hmm. and, and Darius basically taunted them and said, you know, you're too afraid to stop and fight. And they said, no, we're not too afraid. We have different values, essentially try to go after the cemeteries of our ancestors and you'll see how we fight. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Don't mess with their cemeteries. Yeah, don't exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they shouldn't have said that at all. <laughs> right. Um, there's another story about Darius uh, from further south. And I forget the name of the river, but he had the steppe nomads on one side and he was on the other and they were driving him crazy because they were using bows and taunting him to come across the river and he couldn't do it because of the archers yeah yeah they were pinning him down yeah absolutely um yeah and of course uh, i uh, one more story on this front um, uh, another battle which i'm not exactly sure if it's historic or not because I think Herodotus, Herodotus says it's, it's true and Xenophon doesn't mention it at all, that even Cyrus the Great may have died on the Northeast Iranian frontier fighting uh, a tribe of, of Northeast Iranians led by Queen Tamiris. But again, I'm not sure if that's an apocryphal story or, um, or if we know that it's history, but that same thing can be said for so much of history, of course. Yeah, it's, it's possible because the uh, Alans and Sarmatians did have their women fight with them. Herodotus recorded that, yeah. and that's where the whole idea of the Amazon came. But a, a, yeah. a woman had to kill three men in battle before she was allowed to marry. It was a three? I thought it was one. My gosh. Three. 
<laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, there was a, I'll have to send you an article that came out a year or two ago by, from BBC, which was talking about the Amazons being these North Aaronic Sarmatian warrior women uh, that the Greeks derisively, you know, uh, thought, called Amazons. Uh, because in the Greek world at the time, you know, women, women did not fight. Um, but right. um, uh, certainly in the Sarmatian uh, uh, and uh, I don't know if you would have called them Alons at that point. I think they were called the Sarmatians. Uh, they were uh, right there with the men fighting. And I had right. heard the story that they had to kill at least one person. I didn't know three. It's three. Oh, my God. Most Indo-European um, groups do things in threes. And they're <laughs> definitely Indo-European in their ancestry. So, yep, it was three. The magical number three. So what's what's been the... Uh, critical and commercial reception of the book. When did it first come out? The original, uh, the original first edition. First edition's nineteen ninety four. Okay. And the U.S. and the British hated it. Yeah. <laughs> of course they would. Um, you know, then uh, taking away, uh, in a sense, and even partially taking away a central icon of of your culture. Well, there. Um, those two groups are very much into the Celticization of the stories. It started in the late 19th century and went on into the early 20th century, um, largely champ championed by uh, Roger Sherman Lewis, Loomis. And um, he said, well, all these stories where you have these white animals and stuff, that's all Celtic. And it's like, no, the Sarmatians and the Allens had that too. And the Allens even passed it over to the Huns. There's a white stag that leads uh, Attila across the swamp. Um, but uh, a lot of the stuff that Loomis was saying was Celtic was stuff he just was making up out of whole cloth. It, it wasn't there. And so like you have these people being modern day Druids. No, they're not. The religion died out long ago they've recreated a religion and they're following it um but uh at the same time you have this celtic stuff going on there's been another tradition that dates back to the ninth century that arthur was roman and that's been passed along by scholars too along parallel to this uh, celtic studies stuff and the Celtic studies people just like to ignore it. And the Roman studies people oh, really? so they're kind of quiet about it. The, the Arturius, the, the Roman Arthur as well. Yes. Okay. So let, just to make sure that everyone is clear who's listening, uh, these are not, your theory incorporates that, correct? That Arthur yes. himself was a Roman, but that the knights were Sarmatians. Sarmatians yes, exactly. Yeah. Their commander was Roman because they were in the Roman army. Yeah, but uh, they they were the knights that fought, and um, yeah, the the commander was named Lucas Artorius Castus. That's where you get the name Arthur from. Was from his family name, because you can't get from the name Arthur to the name Ar Artus and these other names that show up in the French manuscripts. But you can get there from Artorius. So Artorius was the name that the that generated the other names. Uh, and there was a, another very major Arthurian character, Lancelot, and yes. I believe you, you had uh, something very directly to do with this theory, didn't you, that, uh, let me see if I can uh, uh, formulate it correctly and correct me if I'm wrong, but um, one of these groups, the Alons, these North Aaronic groups, uh, part of the Sarmatians, you could say, were the Alons, which maybe etymologically is just rela related to Aaron or Arian. So, um, cognate with Iran, um, but that the word uh, Lancelot could be related to Alan of Lot. Is that, is that correct? That was my idea. And it right, came yeah. okay. from, yes, I, I was the first one to write about that back in the 1980s. Oh my gosh, I'm old. Um, <laughs> but uh, there were several groups of Alans that came into Gaul uh, one came in at uh, 406 AD on December 31st. The Rhine happened to freeze over and they were able to ride across. And so part of that group went over into what the Romans called Armorica, that's modern Brittany. 
um, the little peninsula that goes up from France up by Britain. And uh, Visigoths came over with them and the Alans and Visigoths, some of the Alans settled around Normandy. Um, another group of Alans and Visigoths got into, they crossed the Pyrenees and went into Spain. Some of those Alans broke off and went up to Northwest Spain and they may have even gotten to Ireland from there because there was a Roman um, lighthouse there and they had a lot of uh, trade. What century approximately are we talking about? This is in the fifth century. Fifth century, okay. And the rest of the Alans and the Visigoths, so there was still a lot of Alans because- This is separate then from the number that were transported by the Roman legions. Right, the okay. Alans were huge. Act, or no, they were with Vandals by this point. Um, they, the Visigoths had broken off. Um, they were with Vandals and uh, they go from Southern Spain to Northern Africa and their king was Rashbandial, and he was called the king of the Alans and the Vandals. So there were more Alans than there were Vandals. And they got all the way over to Alexandria before an Alan chieftain um, came down from what became modern Byzantium and explained to them that we're all friends here, go, go do something else. And they went up and uh, went to Carthage and crossed there and sacked Rome. And sacked Rome on the way, yeah. Uh, you know, it, it reminds me of two things. First, you know, the, the stories of the, I forget which of the Crusades, where essentially they sacked Byzantium instead of going all the way to Jerusalem. Right. Uh, and, and also, you know, there's a very interesting parallel that most people who know history casually just don't have this in their mind. That, you know, they imagine that they, they, they know well of the Arabs and the Berbers coming from North Africa north into, into Spain and also into France for a brief while. But here we have much earlier than that, a group of North Iranic peoples going the other way from the North, from Europe down into Spain and then into yes. Africa. <laughs> yeah, um, the part I was just talking about there was about the middle of the fifth century. And yeah. earlier than that, you have a Roman commander, or no, it's um, an Alan commander named Alaric. And he had Alans and Visigoths, and they come down the Italian peninsula from the north. They sack Rome in 410. And those Alans didn't follow orders very well. Alan, um, Alaric told them not to take loot from the city, and they did. They took a lot of treasure. <laughs> and that was a good thing for Alaric because uh, he died a few days later, a few weeks later. And the uh, Alans diverted a river and put his body at the uh, riverbed and buried him with treasure and then moved the river back over him. And we've never found that grave. We have no idea where it is. Um, and then that group was taken over by a guy named Atolf uh, from the Visigoths. And they went over to Southern Gaul and settled around, uh, they, they did a lot of fighting over there. They were uh, with a guy named uh, Count Paulinus Peleus, who was a Roman. And that might be where the Fisher King's name comes from, Pelinor. Oh, interesting. And um, they had the, the, this the... treasure that had golden cups in it and uh, branch candlesticks and stuff. And uh, so they probably got it from the Arch of Titus shows that treasure. And so they probably got it from the Jewish temple. Um, but they settle around Burgundy and that's where the uh, stories of the Holy Grail uh, arise. I was going to say, there's got to be a connection there to the, what the Holy Grail actually is, right? Is, is it possible that it's really several different things sort of combined over time? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. When you get stories like this, they tend to meld together. Yeah. So there's no one true story. In, they in just... other words, that it could have had a, a North Ironic Allen or Sarmatian origin, but then also uh, there was this, that an actual piece maybe uh, looted from, from Rome. Right. Yeah, yeah that's very possible. And it all goes back to those stories of the Scythians and uh, the Sarmatians valuing the golden cup that they poured the blood over the sword from. Um, yeah. and, I'll, and I'll just mention again for our Persian speaking community, um, the, the very, they, they will all you know, recognize this immediately that in the Shahnameh, one of the central themes is the Jama Jam, which is a, a magical cup that the king has and you can see the future in it. But it also involves a, a golden cup. 
<laughs> very interesting. Um, so, you know, to, to uh, again, uh, we're going to do a, a number of these, hopefully. And so I think this has been a, a really good introductory talk. I think the vast majority of people will be shocked, first of all, to realize that there were these Eurasian North Ironic tribes, such as the Alans, Sarmatians, Yazigis, uh, Aorsi, I think is another one. They're, they go by a number of names, Rocks Alans, who migrated westward into Europe, and they uh, brought a lot of their tradition that contributed, uh, as you argue in the book, and uh, very meticulously, to what became later the uh, Arthurian uh, legends or uh, cycle, as they say. Uh, I also uh, I wonder if you would uh, agree with the following uh, thought, that it seems that even in Britain, which is the furthest northwest area that these folks got to, if you include the couple of different Alon migrations, plus the, the 15 to 20,000 you mentioned that were probably transported there by the Romans, that if you add all these up, that would have been a fairly significant portion of the population of that region during that time. Is that correct? Yes, uh, we've got DNA results coming out from that area and up along Hadrian's Wall that show genes from the Caucasus Mountains. Wow. So they interbred with the local, with the Romans and with the local uh, peoples there. Wow, wow, amazing. And, and, and of course, the, the, the English boy's name, I don't know if it was ever a girl's name too, and the French boy's name, Alan or Alain, is likely related to the Alan people, correct? Yeah, the, the girl's name is Elaine. Elaine, yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, amazing, amazing the connections that, you know, were not taught in school. Uh, but, you know, uh, before, again, before we conclude here, uh, if you don't mind, there was an introduction that I'd like to read just a paragraph from uh, to your book by Professor Victor H. Uh, Meyer, or is it Mayor? Mayor. Mayor. Yeah, Mayor. Um, from uh, an Ivy League school, University of Pennsylvania. And I, I'd like just to take a moment to read a paragraph uh, and a half of this about uh, your book, From Scythia to Camelot. Um, uh, Professor Mayer writes, From Scythia to Camelot will be the unavoidable benchmark for all future discussions of King Arthur and his band of warriors. The consequences of this book, however, go far beyond Arthurian studies because of its unusual amplitude. I believe that from Scythia to Camelot should be required reading for all students and scholars of British, Celtic and Iranian archeology, span anthropology, mythology, legend and folklore, religion and history. Furthermore, because it points the way to a more open-minded approach to all history and culture, it would be very well for virtually, it would do very well for every other field in the humanities to become acquainted with this book. We should celebrate, celebrate uh, the appearance of this monumentally important book with a conference, nay, a whole series of conferences on the oneness of humanity. After enduring decades of dogmatic insistence on the separateness and isolation of cultures, let the superb scholarship of Littleton and Malcor point the way to a more open, an accepting view of the mutual interactions of all peoples. Surely this book deserves a prize, both for its meticulousness and for its bravery in bucking half a century of academic rhetoric that has sought to keep all cultures closed up in their own little blocks boxes. Wow, that's a, that's a hell of an endorsement. <laughs> yes, um, he's, he just really went to bat for us. There was no award, but... <laughs> It's still in constant publication for 27 years. It's never gone out of print. Well, I'll tell you, uh, on the positive side, are you aware that uh, there was a major Hollywood film about King Arthur, I think 2004? I was the researcher for it. You okay? Do <laughs> <laughs> you ever want to talk about that? <laughs> okay. No, it because it it actually uh, it goes with the Sarmatian theory of that the, these, yes. these Arthuronic Sarmatians uh, are the origin of uh, at least the, the not Arthur himself but the knights. Mm -hmm. Yes, very interesting. So so you know some sometimes this sort of stuff does tend to percolate uh, uh, up or downward in this case into the popular culture. Yes, uh, I've I've had a lot of people contact me about the book. Um, 
saying it, it just really turned their uh, view around on what the Arthurian legends were and where they came from. Um, it's very popular in Russia. Most people I'm told in Ossetia have read it. Um, well, I'll tell you, yeah. you and I have discussed this offline before, but if this is tra translated into Persian, that will be your largest. Oh, yes. <laughs> I would love to have it translated into yeah, Persian. We'll I really to, would. We'll talk about that uh, offline uh, some more because I think it, that that has to happen. Um, and also, uh, again, before I let you go, you have an upcoming book. Do you want to say a couple of words about both the new book and also how people can find more information about this whole topic and how to get a hold of, of, of from Scythia to Camelot? Well, the easy question there is how to get a hold of from Scythia to Camelot. And all you have to do is pop onto Google um, or Amazon.com or Barnes and Noble. It's, it's available. Um, yeah, sometimes they have it uh, used and you can pick it up at a cheaper price. I um, don't think, like I said, it's been in constant print and it's in Japanese, it's in Hungarian. I think the Hungarians are sold out. Finally. So you can just Google it and it's everywhere. Yeah, it's everywhere. It's really easy to find. Um, you Google my name, it'll come up. Um, and then the new book was supposed to be out this March, but thank you to COVID, um, it took out the entire press that uh, the book was coming out with. So the book won't be out till 2023. Um, okay. But it's about this commander, Lucas Sartorius Castor, Castus, and it's a biography of his life. And it has a significant section on the Sarmatians. I see. So it doesn't contradict anything here, it just adds to it. Yeah, it just adds to it. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, I think this has been a, a perfect introduction. Uh, Dr. Malcor, thank you for being with me. And I would uh, love to continue this discussion and, uh, over the coming weeks and months. Uh, and possibly we'll have an opportunity to delve into each of these multiple areas that comprise this larger thesis in, in greater depth. That would be wonderful. I'm up for it. Sounds great. Thanks so much, and I look forward to speaking shortly. You're welcome. Take care.